Welcome to Cleveland Clinic Cardiac Consult, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute at Cleveland Clinic. So welcome everybody. My name is Sean Lydon. I'm the chairman of Vascular Surgery at the Cleveland Clinic, and with me today I have Dr. Scott Cameron, who is the head of vascular medicine at Cleveland Clinic, and Dr. Christopher Bezier, who's one of our intervention cardiologists at the Cleveland Clinic, and we're going to talk to you guys a little bit about carotid artery disease and where it stands today in 2021, both from medical management and then the options for treatment from either a surgical or an interventional standpoint. And so maybe Dr. Cameron, you know, there's been a couple of really interesting studies that have come out in the last couple of years that have, have um, talked about risk factor reduction and, and also about the risks of stroke. And so where do we stand today in terms of what the risk of carotid disease is and what are the new medicines out there that we might see our patients on that might reduce those ongoing risks of either stroke or other problems or progression of the carotid disease or progression of vascular disease outside of the carotid arteries in their both legs and in their heart? Sure, it's a great question. I mean, one of the things that we know is that patients who've got narrowing in another blood vessel somewhere in their body, whether it's the heart or the legs, statistically have a much higher risk of having narrowing in the carotid arteries, maybe a one in three chance if it's found elsewhere. Um, medications that lower cholesterol, medications that lower blood pressure um, are the mainstay and always have been. Uh, but some of the exciting developments we've had, at least in the last five or six years, involve medications that thin the blood. And so we call those antithrombotic medications. Um, two types of classes, there are those that block platelets, the cells that float around in your body and can stick together and form blood clots. And then there are those called anticoagulants. Those are things that sometimes you would associate a patient needing if they'd had a blood clot in their body. Some of the newer studies showing that combinations of certain antiplatelet medicines and other blood thinners may be more beneficial than just giving aspirin, for example, which is what we always did. And so what I find myself doing when I see patients is I look at the medications they're on, I look at the data, I look at certain things the patient may have going on in other parts of their body, and we can actually individualize the medicine regimen based on what that patient is and what other diseases they have, if they've already had a stroke, for example, or if they've also got narrowed arteries in the leg. We know that by changing the combinations of medicine, we can decrease that stroke risk in someone with carotid disease. So Dr. Bezier, you know, when we're all medical students, we're taught how to do physical exam to listen for carotid bruise. We know that a carotid bruise means your turbulence can be narrowing, and so those patients to get a carotid ultrasound to see if they have carotid disease. Who else in, 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 in for patients with both cardiovascular, cerebrovascular, and peripheral disease, should we think about screening or looking for the uh, risk or having carotid disease because it's so prevalent in some of those other populations. So when you see a patient with cardiac disease or vascular disease in, in your office and you don't hear a carotid bruit, who else might you think about getting sort of a screening ultrasound on to see if there's carotid disease? You bring up an excellent point. And for my practice, if anyone has vascular disease or atherosclerosis anywhere in their body, I personally believe that they're deserving of at least one carotid duplex screen to check to see if they have disease in the carotid artery. If it is then found, then a surveillance uh, a map for the upcoming years can be made to keep tabs on that. Likewise, I also believe that anybody with vascular disease is in uh, a good position to have at least a, a screening ABI or a pulse volume recording to check if there's actually disease in the lower extremities. So I think that anybody with vascular disease anywhere uh, in the body is deserving of these screens. 
That being said, I think that if you have a number of risk factors, even if, they're, if you are asymptomatic or you don't hear a brewery, which is not always indicative of an open artery, I still think that with a number of risk factors that could contribute to the development and progression of uh, vascular disease, you're deserving of at least once in your life having a screening study. I think that's important. And I think the other question many times I think we get from, uh, from physicians who don't manage these patients every day is how often then if we do find some disease, should we recheck it? Should it be every six months, every three months, every couple of years? And so maybe Dr. Cameron, you can comment about, depending on the degree of narrowing of how often, you know, that the carotid disease should get rechecked. And then when should they come be sent to someone who would actually be able to figure out when to manage it? And so, so if they get a screening ultrasound and there's some disease, at what point should it get checked again? And then when should they send it to someone here in the Heart and Vascular Institute to be evaluated for the options for management? So that's an excellent question. I think the easiest decision making for patients are those that have got extremely narrowed arteries in the neck or those that really don't have very much narrowing. They may just have some hardening. We know what to do with those patients at one extreme, someone with severe narrowing even without symptoms. There's a lot of data to say that they would benefit from a procedure. We know this. This is very clear in terms of reducing the risk of stroke even without symptoms. Those are at the other end of the spectrum. They have some narrowing or maybe what we call soft plaque. Those are patients that I may do it again in a year just to see if it's progressing and if the medicine regimen I'm giving them is appropriate for them. Now, somebody who's in the moderate range, that's completely different because we know that those patients are at higher risk of stroke. And those patients, I would say, if you're moderately narrowed, it would be more appropriate that the imaging is done more frequently than once annually. So that may be at least once every six months and occasionally, depending on other risk factors the patient has, I may do it three months later just to see if anything's happened. But I think most people would tell you in the moderate range, you should check one more time in around six months just to see if your medicines are doing what they're supposed to. That is that they're preventing further narrowing and even sometimes regressing some of that soft plaque, which we do sometimes see. And I think that's a question people ask us all the time is, can we do anything to sort of have liquid Drano to get rid of the plaque? Um, and, and I remind patients, we don't, and doctors, we don't have liquid Drano, but we do know with aggressive pharmacologic therapy of, of cholesterol that we can get that down. And so, you know, Dr. Bajer, maybe you want to talk about what are the goals we use for driving LDL, and if they're not tolerant of a statin, what are the other things we do here at the clinic to try and get patients so they get to an appropriate LDL, and then what are the options we have for them here? All, all very good questions. Uh, Obviously, there's a huge family of drugs that are in the statin uh, class. Cardiologists, vascular surgeons, vascular medicine specialists, we really like just a few of those medications, specifically because studies have shown their ability to either halt the progression of disease or potentially cause that Drano effect, as you uh, pointed out. So I tend to gravitate towards either Lipitor or Crestor if the patient can tolerate it. And the current guidelines would say that people with vascular disease, they're deserving of what is termed to be a high intensity statin, which is really only one of a couple of options. It's usually Lipitor at its highest dose of 80 milligrams a day, or Crestor at either its intermediate dose of 20 or its highest dose of 40 milligrams a day. If a person is on one of these agents and is not able to achieve what I call the Drano threshold, which is an LDL usually less than 70 milligrams per deciliter, 
I would often add a little azetamide, azetia, to the regimen. If on that combination we're still not able to get a person to that goal of less than 70 milligrams per deciliter for LDL, I usually would refer to my colleagues in preventive cardiology to see if they could potentially be placed on a PCSK9 inhibitor, such as Praluent or Repatha. Um, there are obviously some obstacles to those medications. One, that they're not a tablet, they require injection. And the second, sometimes is actually cost becomes an obstacle, but our preventive cardiology group is very adept and has a lot of good relationships with insurance companies as well as the companies that manufacture the drug to be able to get this to be at an affordable cost. And you know, in the last couple of years, we've seen five-year results from the ACT-1 trial, which looked at asymptomatic patients having carotid stenting versus surgery. We've seen the CREST trial and the CREST-TRUE trials now ongoing. Where, where do we sit in terms of what we know about our knowledge about stenting versus surgery and who may be best for surgery, who may be best for stenting, and, and how we try and think of it here as a group of both vascular medicine, interventional cardiology, and vascular surgery to make sure we offer the best therapy for our patients. And so maybe, Dr. Cameron, if you want to comment a little bit about the data, then Chris, sort of, what are the factors that you look at of who you think might be best for one therapy over another? I think one of the, the biggest things that drives the decision-making is other things a patient might have going on in their body. So if you have somebody who's perhaps a lot older, they're frail, they have disease in the arteries, they may have disease in the legs. We know that those are patients that are higher risk for doing certain procedures. Uh, we also know that um, patients that may have certain what we call anatomic constraints, and so the big blood vessel, the aorta, um, if you're trying to stent and move beyond the aorta on the way to the neck, depending on the angle of that blood vessel, it can be a bit more risky in terms of stroke risk for a patient. And those are patients that we know would probably do better with an open surgical technique. Um, part of it is just knowing the imaging of the patient, what's going on in their body, and then also having a great collaborative relationship uh, with colleagues who either perform the surgical procedures or, or also can do percutaneous stenting. Yeah, to Scott's point, I think that's where really the strength of the Cleveland Clinic lies is that we have uh, the depth and breadth of specialties, both uh, non-invasive, invasive endovascular, and as well as invasive surgical, to be able to act as a team uh, such that we have a team approach. So we try to really find the best possible option for an individual patient because all patients are not alike. And to Scott's point, Every person may have some certain nuance of how they're put together inside of the body, how much other disease may be in, uh, present in other parts of the body, and this will factor into the risk of undergoing either a surgical procedure versus an endovascular procedure. And although, again, a patient may have a certain particular bias, ultimately there is usually uh, some component of health or non-health or disease that would sway a, a doctor into choosing one or the other option. So maybe I can ask you guys both a comment. You know, a lot of times we see patients from all over the place and, you know, many times it may be from a primary care physician or internal medicine physician or maybe from another specialist, maybe an interventional cardiologist, a vascular medicine doctor, a vascular surgeon. And what are the things we try and do to work with them so that we provide good care here, but also make sure the patient goes home and continues to have good care? So I know when I do a procedure on a patient, whether it's a carotid center surgery, 
I usually want to see them for their first post-operative visit, but then one of the things I tried to do is forgot how much expertise the person who sent them to me had. And, and really, a lot of times, we're really, really open to having those discussions on the phone to make sure that if they're comfortable having it at home, that you know that patient, if they had good care, we can do a part, but then we can work together. So maybe you guys want to comment if some things we try and do in our practices here to engage so that when people come from afar, that they're not having to come back here for everything, but we want to be there for as much as we need to be, depending on the expertise that they have locally before they come to us. You know, that that's a little more challenging, depending on what the patient has done and, and, and where they come from. So this is, this is how I do it. So um, I have a personal policy that if a consultation is requested as a new patient, the person requesting that consultation will have a full and thorough documentation within 24 hours. It's the very least we can do. We'll communicate with them. If there's a particularly sensitive issue, and it might be one where I'm recommending a procedure, I do actually try and talk with them. And what I find patients uh, find reassuring is me telling them, the person that referred you here, the physician referred you, they had a very specific question. I want to make sure that I answer that question, but I also want to be able to relay certain feelings that you have so that I, if I recommend something, um, it's also going to be managing your expectations and, and not just a procedure that we can offer. And I find that keeping communication open um, only helps. But in terms of um, handling remotely, um, I think that the MyChart uh, option that Cleveland Clinic offers is excellent. Um, I, I tell patients I check that twice daily. So even though you might live in California, you have a local physician and we, they'll be able to manage sometimes the imaging if they've had a, a stent, for example, or surgery. If you have any questions or anything that want, warrants clarification, feel free to just uh, send that to me. And sometimes I set up the MyChart for them right in the office and it, it will go to their cell phone. And they quite like that comfort, knowing that when they leave, they still have access. So Dr. Bezier, you see people from all over the world, all over the country. How, how have you tried to incorporate that in your practice, the, the sort of make sure that we're providing the expertise as needed, but also you know, making sure that uh, what is appropriate local can be done locally? Very similar to your practice, if I do do a procedure, I, I feel a certain uh, responsibility and ownership of the patient for that short period of time after the procedure is performed to make sure that there's no complications that are directly related to the procedure. After the procedure, though, I do like to communicate uh, with the referring doctor and say, look, thank you very much for the referral to the Cleveland Clinic. I'm happy to be available as much as you feel would be necessary. Oftentimes, the referring doctor would say, this is a problem I feel more comfortable having the Cleveland Clinic manage. Please do the appropriate follow-up. Sometimes they say, thank you very much for the repair and taking care of my patient. I believe we can do the surveillance locally at home. And to Scott's point, I do leverage our electronic medical record, which has the ability not only of the my chart for the patient, but Dr. Connect, which is the physician side, where the physician, again, no cost to the practice, they're, they're allowed to have access to every bit of the medical record that's at the Cleveland Clinic through a web portal that's secure, and they can get all the information of what happened to their patient while they were at the Cleveland Clinic, even if they don't share our particular platform for an electronic medical record, which I think is a very handy thing for people that are coming from out of state or if they're even out of country. And you know, with carotid disease, uh, we've, we've had stenting for now 20 years, and, and really in the last five to seven, we've not had much development outside of the United States. I know there's been a lot of trials and interest in uh, stents that are lined with membranes or fabrics. 
Um, there was one trial in the United States, but it seems that it's still evolving in Europe, but it, it really hasn't come to mainstream in the United States. You know, Dr. Fager, can you comment on sort of where those trials stand and what sort of expectations and road bumps those have had and where we might see the stenting technology maybe evolve over the next five years for things we might have available for patients here to be cared for? Well, to your point, uh, when stenting first came into being, there was a large uh, cohort of companies that were making various different types of stents, different designs of stents, different designs of filters. As the technology matured, a number of these companies have gone by the wayside for various different business decisions, decided that this was not going to be something that they were going to pursue, such that today we have just a few companies that actually have FDA approval for use in the United States. Do I think that there will be continued improvement? There will be and there has been to some degree in terms of efficacy of filters, reversal of flow, uh, stents that have medication coatings on them uh, have some tremendous improvements with regards to coronary disease in that they've taken an instant restenosis rate of almost 50% down to less than 7%. It becomes a little bit more challenging with carotid disease because the carotid stents with an unmedicated or non-medicated stents, we're still in a range of about one to 2% chance of restenosis. So it's really very challenging to say that putting a membrane coating or medication is going to move the dial tremendously that'll make the difference in terms of, uh, uh, of outcomes. And I, I think the one thing we've really struggled with for the last 20 years is when the when CMS put out a non-coverage determination or the national coverage determination on carotid disease, uh, a lot of our patients are, are Medicare, Medicaid, and there's very specific guidance on who can be treated. Um, I think the one thing that we've done well at the clinic is really work together, whether it's cardiology, vascular surgery, vascular medicine as a team. And I think the really one thing that resounded uh, when that came out was the fact that all the different specialties held very ideas of the best way to treat patients. And we've seen in other platforms like uh, TAVR, where you're treating uh, now valves percutaneously, when everybody's on the same page, it's very difficult for our uh, Medicare to, to have coverage policies that don't make sense. I know I've been on panels with some people from CMS, and they say the one thing that they hope they could walk back would be that. And, and I think the really thing physicians need to realize is that the data, in my opinion, supports that both therapies are really well. They have equivalent outcomes and skilled hands. And you know, we hope it someday that uh, we can get all the societies like we have at the Cleveland Clinic on one page to do the best things for the patient so that we can roll back that NCD so that you really talk about a technology and a platform and where each works best as opposed to a therapy, does someone need carotid disease or not? Because I think there's good five-year data from Crest and ACT2 and hopefully eventually from Crest2 that really shows that the, both therapies work and really you know, we need to understand who each one works better in. And so I think we really have a good model here where it's about how we work together to do the best things for the patient to get all their risk factors controlled. Um, but I, I really think one of the things we all sort of struggle with is at least from a stenting platform, uh, there are limitations depending on payers of what we can offer patients. And, and, and what are the things you try and talk to the referring doctors about? Because they may send someone who's Medicare, who's asymptomatic and 70% and high risk, but they haven't had symptoms. And by Medicare standards, we can't get those people treated. And it's, it's sort of a struggle where the, a private payer may say yes for this person and the government payer says no. Yeah, 
excellent question. And oftentimes, actually, in, indeed, more recently, I've had the younger patient that uh, will come in. And previously, uh, commercial insurance would pretty much uh, agree and say that this option of carotid stenting is very reasonable. But of late, I've been having a number of denials. And then really that, that the option to the patient is just the surgery. Not that it's actually a wrong decision, uh, but it does take away uh, some options for the patient and options for the doctor to really steer the patient perhaps in the right therapy for that particular patient. So um, I, I wish that things were a little bit different and hopefully in the future they will be uh, a bit different, but I think the more collaboratively we can work as physicians to actually show that yes, we can work together uh, just like surgeons can uh, with cardiologists with regards to valvular heart disease, I think we could actually uh, move the needle on that. What other ideas or topics, Dr. Cameron, that you know we haven't addressed yet that are common things that you get asked by the internal medicine people, the other people referring patients from carotid disease or things that we'd want to let them know that are new updates and in, in parts of carotid management that we've really seen in the last three to four years since we last sort of talked about this? Well, that, that's an easy question to answer. The thing that comes up from both patients and referring physicians or providers is, can the patient be enrolled in any studies while they're there? And that's something that I think is fairly organic at Cleveland Clinic because research and clinical care, they go hand in hand. Clinical care is number one. The patient is number one when they're here. But what I often find, at least in clinic, is that the patients will ask, are there any studies? Can you use my blood? And you know I study blood clotting. And coming up with um, guidelines for stents, the only way that we'll be able to progress guidelines and positively impact reimbursability and cover care for patients is by data. And the only way you can get data is to get data, and that's doing research. If this is a new procedure, a new stent, um, how about the risk of restenosis? Is it less? How is the blood interfacing with the surface of the stent? And so while the patient's here for clinical care, quite often they'll give a blood sample, and then the same day we have a team that can take that sample to the lab and get real-time data. And so for each of those patient encounters, after several of them, we can then be the people that can show the data and write the guidelines. And that's how policy changes. And I, and I think one really cool technology we're looking at is, so we know from the coronary data that when you put a, uh, ultrasound within the blood vessel to intravascular ultrasound, you can determine what type of plaque it is, and then we know yeah. what are the best treatments of the plaque, what are the likelihood that it could progress. And one of the really interesting things is the person who developed that technology was a physician at the clinic. He left our industry. He's now back, and he's now working with us, so we're giving him specimens when we clean out arteries, and they're getting ultrasounds ahead of time to try and correlate how, from an external ultrasound, you might define the type of plaque and if we then could define it routinely of whether it was calcified, whether it was uh, you know, fibrotic, whether it had fatty infiltrates, we can actually then correlate that with the risk of ongoing events. And so one of the really cool things we're doing now is trying to understand how an external probe might tell us the same information when we're inside the blood vessel without the interventional therapy. And I think that's the really uh, interesting thing here is we you know, continue to try and evolve to try and understand how we're doing things. As Dr. Bezier pointed out, uh, when the national coverage determination came out, a lot of the bigger companies sort of fell out of supporting carotid stents, but there are some new technologies out there with coverage stents and 
repairing the stents with the protection systems. We actually just got invited last week for a new trial, so we hopefully have some new endovascular therapies or stenting therapies to offer patients. But really, unless we sort of critically look at all their aspects of their care, I don't think we're going to better define who is best with what therapy and, and what's their best ongoing long-term management. So it's not just that one single episode of treatment, it's really how they're going to do over the rest of their lifetime. I think collaborative care is key, and I, I like how you say the guideline statements. Quite often they're written with uh, American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, Society of Vascular Surgery, Society of Vascular Medicine, and I think that by continuing to stay on the same page and capitalizing on each other's expertise, um, that's how we'll progress the field. So with that, I want to thank Dr. Beja and Dr. Cameron for working with us. For those physicians, we do have a uh, cardiac console that comes out with the new and evolving therapies we're doing here. If you're not on uh, cardiac consult, uh, our information will be attached. Please reach out to us. We'll be happy to make sure you get that. If not, information reaching out to us directly or through the Cleveland Clinic website. And with that, I want to thank everybody for attending or listening. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback. Please contact us at heart at ccf.org. Like what you heard? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen at clevelandclinic.org slash cardiac consult podcast.